0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Tajin, a podcast and blog about North African history. My name is Graham Cornwell. I'm the editor of Tajin, and today I'm joined by Sumaya Hamdani, Associate Professor of Middle East, Islamic, and World History at George Mason University, and the author of Between Revolution and State, The Construction of Fatimid Legitimacy, published in 2006. Most of our podcasts here and, and our blog posts on Tajin have covered the modern or or sometimes the early modern period. But today we're going to go back a bit further uh, to medieval North Africa and um, and also Al Andalus a little bit. So I want to start by asking if you could tell me who Umayya bin Abdulaziz Abu Sald Adani al-Espiri <laughs> was. Uh,
1: so um, Ibn Dani or Abu Salt, um as he is most, most often referred to in the sources about thinkers of this period, uh, which is sometimes known as medieval, but uh, apparently also known as the Middle Period. I mean, we use medieval, too, as a kind of shorthand, but um, many historians of the Islamic world have argued that we should call uh, the period roughly between the 800s to the 1300s. Um, a middle period by way of avoiding the sort of uh, automatic association with the corresponding period in European history, uh, during which things that were very different were going on in Europe from what was happening in the Islamic world, Um, but also by way of deflecting the sort of uh, tendency to fall into a rise and fall or rise and decline sort of syndrome or approach to history. So uh, Abu Salt is someone who was born and kind of evolved in his early uh, adulthood, until his early adulthood, in a period, a very turbulent period politically of Andalusian history, the history of Spain during the Islamic period, uh, that we call the Ta'ifa period. And the Ta'ifa period was a very kind of... um, Politically disastrous moment. Uh, it was the thing that followed the decline of the Umayyad state in Islamic Spain. And it was the prelude to the various jihadist movements that we know as the uh, Al-Muravid or Al-Murabitun, Al-Muhad, Al-Muhadun or Al-Muhad periods of Spanish and North African history at this time. So it was a period of uh, the breakup of a centralized state in Spain, uh, which had existed from uh, during the Umayyad period. And it was the period that that created the need for uh, the Berber invasions of the al and the Al-Muhadun. Even though it was a politically disastrous period, it was paradoxically, a culturally very dynamic and very, um, you know, rich and flourishing period in the history of Islamic Spain. Um, Many of the courts of small rulers, or I should say the courts, small courts of Muslim rulers in Spain (laughs) um, were actively or continue to actively patronize Uh, thinkers in their courts. And so there was an efflorescence in the production of knowledge about science, about religion, about uh, literature in this period. And Abu Salt was a product of this ferment that existed, this kind of cultural ferment that um, existed despite or perhaps because of the political turmoil of the Taifa period in Andalusian history. Unfortunately, however, for all the opportunities created for thought in this time, there was nevertheless the problem of patronage and sustaining institutions that would allow thinkers who were interested in continuing to kind of produce knowledge in uh, keeping body and soul together Um, political turmoil for all that it lifts the constraints of, you know, censorship or of a particular ideological hegemony. Nevertheless, you know, even though it liberates people and gives them the opportunity to kind of think more freely and perhaps more creatively, it nevertheless does present the more practical problem of how to earn one's living and how to acquire Um, the means to keep body and soul together, and also where to be employed um, in order that, you know, your activities can continue. Institutions that need a stable state's patronage or uh, a dynastic kind of stability to uh, continue to produce um, scholars all of a sudden, you know, find themselves in peril. So there was an exodus at this time, and Abusalt is one of many who left uh, Islamic Spain in this period seeking their fortunes in seemingly more stable states elsewhere, places like North Africa under the Zirids or Egypt under the Fatimids. And so he moves in, you know, sort of incrementally toward Egypt and attempts to gain patronage at the Fatimid court in Egypt at the end of the um, 11th century.
0: So uh, you mentioned these, the importance of these patronage systems um, uh, in supporting scholarship and supporting people like Abu Asad. Could you talk a little bit about the d- dynamics of how that actually worked uh, in Al-Andalus or wherever else?
1: Well, I have to confess that I don't know how patronage worked, in particular in Al-Andalus, um, But generally speaking, uh, most historians who've looked at political history uh, in the Islamic world and more specifically at institutions of knowledge and the transmission of knowledge in uh, the Islamic world have identified two sort of uh, revenue streams, if you will, for the sustenance and maintenance of scholarship and the transmission of knowledge. One exists independently of the state, and that is, you know, the madrasa system that begins to emerge in the Islamic world from, roughly speaking, the 10th century. And the other is, of course, the court. Um, What eventually happens is that The madrasa system, which usually is the product of endowments and sort of autonomous, therefore, from the whims of a ruler, um, you know, becomes largely focused in producing individuals who join the ranks of the social group that we call the alama. And their their knowledge is something that is, you know, intended to serve society, and so uh, they tend to have training in religious sciences and ancillary disciplines that support the religious sciences so that they can, you know, upon leaving the madrasa, serve as judges and as prayer leaders in the mosques and so on. The courts, on the other hand, patronized the kinds of knowledge that would occasionally have practical applications, such as, for example, certain sciences. but also the patronage of arts and sciences or knowledge that was purely uh, intended for the kind of glorification of the ruler. So they tended to support uh, people in the, in the literary world. Um, they tended to support poets, historians, who of course were tasked with writing very favorable histories of the regimes or the rulers that, uh, that gave them coins of you know gold purses of gold coins or silver coins. Um, uh, They also tended to support uh, the sciences that would enable them to be able, the rulers, that is, to be able to possibly apply some of those sciences to some of their uh, military campaigns or administration of the realm. So they would support economists, astronomers, um, individuals who might have certain sciences that could be used uh, in that could be applied to for example naval expeditions or military campaigns or taxation but they also just you know would uh patronize scholars whose knowledge was something that enabled them to claim um something of the luster of uh uh, a philosopher king um there was a a legitimacy that rulers had that was predicated not just on their military might, their ability to conquer and defend territory, but also predicated on some very old Middle Eastern and um, Islamicate sort of understandings of a ruler having to necessarily be wise and having to necessarily, therefore, be someone who was um, concerned with uh, existential issues and uh, with philosophical issues that necessitated rulers employing philosophers and so on in their courts to kind of, you know write um, deep thoughts <laughs> about sure. such questions. So Abu salt being one of these individuals who was a polymath in the mode of most people who were involved in non-religious, Transmission of knowledge. Um, you know, he was in, he was a polymath, uh, a mathematician, a musician, a scientist. Um, dabbled in medicine, dabbled in a, a, astronomy, uh, astrology, um, dabbled in a variety of different things. Was someone who naturally would seek patronage at a court, um, and so the courts of Islamic Spain, coming under the strain and the stress of Fragmentation and the impending, and actual, uh, eventually, um, jihadist conquest, Berber jihadist conquest of the Almoravids and the um, Almohads. He went, to, you know, to seek his fortunes elsewhere at courts in North Africa and at the court of the Fatimids in Cairo.
0: And and what sort of reception does he get in um, in Fatimid Cairo?
1: Well, the reason I was interested in Abu Salt was because most people who work on the Fatimids understand them to be a a dynasty that ruled an empire that was um, chaotically attempting to establish Shiism in the territories that they conquered. Um, Fatimids are usually approached as a sectarian phenomenon, And as a result, most of what tends to get written about the Fatimids is really interested in what they do to kind of move uh, or develop um, their form of Shiism. Generally speaking, um, most scholars have not approached the Fatimids as a phenomenon that reflects more generally, what is happening in the Islamic world. They tend to approach the Fatimids as a particularly Shi phenomenon. Um, and that colors the way in which they understand the Fatimid court and Fatimid society. Um, in finding someone like abul Salt, who comes from a very Sunni environment in Islamic Spain, seeking his fortune and what is presumably... A uh, very sectarian Shi environment at the Fatimid court, you find someone who uh, clearly does not find the Shi identity of the Fatimid court and of the officials from whom he seeks patronage to be an issue. And this is important because it tells us that, one, those sectarian boundaries are not particularly meaningful at least to certain social groups like intellectuals. And two, it also tells us that they're not particularly rigid, that there is a kind of fluidity, if you will, in the religious identity of scholarly um, individuals like Abu Salt. Um, so he doesn't much care <laughs> that he's going to a Shi'i court. He doesn't particularly care that you know he is himself Sunni. He's someone who is involved, in any case, as he sees himself, uh, to be involved in the pursuit of knowledge that is outside of religion and certainly outside of sectarian uh, issues or sectarian concerns within that religion. Um, And that, I think, is a very useful and instructive thing to... Um, to keep in mind because we tend to assume that sectarian boundaries are impermeable in Islam and that sectarian boundaries um, exist from the outset in Islamic history, whereas at least until the late 10th century, if not later, uh, you know, Sunni versus Shi was not as meaningful an identity for many people, and certainly not for polymaths like Abu Salt. So
0: could you maybe give us an idea um, for our listeners who aren't particularly familiar with the period? Um, Abu Salt is going to um, Fatimid Cairo in in roughly the late 11th, early 12th century. Um, What's going on internally in the empire at, at that time?
1: Well, unfortunately for Ebel Salt, what's going on is the breakdown of the Fatimid Empire. He has perhaps, bad luck. yeah, <laughs> perhaps at um, a rate that was not as cataclysmic as that of um, the regimes that the petty kingdoms that uh, exist in Spain during this uh, same period, but definitely the Fatimid Empire is in crisis, and it's in crisis for a number of reasons, but um, one thing that Abel Salt does not have to worry about is that for all of the internal political dynamics that are seeing shifts in the locus of power from the caliph to the vizier, uh, problems with the unity of the military under the Fatiman Empire, even threats from beyond such as The Crusades in the eastern Mediterranean areas under Fatimid control, or the threat from Turkic uh, incursions on the part of the Seljuks into the central uh, Middle East. For all of that is happening, what Abu Salt does not have to worry about is an ideological crisis at the center of the Fatimid court that would perceive the production of secular knowledge to be a problem. And this is something that scholars like him did experience in Spain. So in Spain, the period of the petty kings or the Taifa period, as as we call it, um, at the time that Salt is born and is emerging and training as a scholar, was going to lead to the takeover of Islamic Spain by individuals who were considered themselves Mujahideen or jihadists uh, who were attempting, by virtue of their um, ideological sort of orientation, to re-examine the usefulness of certain kinds of knowledge production that Spain had become famous for. So it was not a particularly conducive environment for someone like Abel Salt, whereas this issue did not exist in Fatimid Egypt. The Fatimids were known to be very sort of avid consumers of all kinds of knowledge, and they did not have, by virtue of their Shi identity, a particular uh, problem with the pursuit of uh, knowledge whose origins connected them to pre-Islamic, Intellectual pursuits like Greek philosophy or Greek medicine.
0: So this—he's in Cairo, um, and and sort of searching for this patronage that you talked about. Is he successful? Does he's he, not. Does, he's does a he spectacular find? failure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor Abusau.
1: He was. He was unfortunately not able to get the ear of the vizier or the eye of the vizier, um, and that that was. The reason that ultimately, he, his attempts to gain the vizier's favor uh, became more and more sort of uh, desperate and eventually led to his making uh, a kind of strategic error with a scientific experiment and this ended up landing him in jail. Um, so he was uh, imprisoned for having fallen out of favor. Uh, but prison, at the same time, seems to have been a very productive period, not a terribly onerous time in his life. Um, prison clearly meant restriction on his freedom of movement, but it didn't mean a restriction on his intellectual development. So his memoirs, the things that are travelog that I looked at, um, talk about his continuing to be to be received, not received, but uh, to con- continuing to be visited by uh, people in the scholarly community of Cairo and Alexandria that he had met. Um, And he, during those uh, years of imprisonment, was able to produce um, some seminal medical and other works. And eventually, when he left Egypt, uh, after having failed to secure patronage, he ended up at the Zirid court in North Africa. And it was um, as a kind of uh, token of gratitude for having received patronage at that court in Tunis that he writes this memoir of his trip or Rehla to Egypt um, in which he talks about many things but um, but more uh, specifically about the community of scholars that he was a part of in Egypt and that was able to provide subsequent biographers with some very important and critical information on uh, intellectuals in Egypt at the time. So
0: from, um, you mentioned from Egypt, he goes to, to the Tunis. Zirid court in Tunis, and he finds a more receptive uh, atmosphere to, to his work, at least, um, and, and writes this, this regla. Does he, how does he look back on his time in in? Cairo?
1: It's a complicated question, actually. Um, Clearly, it was formative enough for him to have been, you know, something that he wanted to write about. Um, But I think at the same time, uh, he was writing this rehla in a sense um, as a kind of, uh, you know, possibly at the request of the Zirid ruler uh, there was a kind of competition, if you will, uh, between the Zirids and the Fatimids. On many levels, uh, the Zirids had broken away um, from the Fatimid court, which they had previously been in ties of vassalage to. The Zirids had suffered punitive actions by the Fatimids. But the Zirids were also a product of the same general phenomenon, um, i.e. the the kind of uh, political leadership that is represented not just by the Fatimids but also the Abbasids. They were individuals who sought to create a court at which, you know, art and science was patronized. So they were curious about the kind of intellectual activities of the Fatimid court. Um, they were also a little bit in competition with them. And uh, so Abu Salt attempts to kind of inform his new patrons about the kind of intellectual activity in Egypt, um, one would guess, from the contents of the Rahla itself.
0: The story is is fascinating for a lot of reasons, um, which are sort of tracing Abu Salt's life. Um, but one is that it it takes us across a very long distance geographically. Um, Can you talk about what this says about the sort of the world or the worlds that Abu Salt is inhabiting and and moving through um, at at that time, the end of the 11th century?
1: I mean, most immediately what the world Abu Salt is experiencing or living in, rather, um, the the world in which he inhabits at the late 11th century is a world that is still very much a part of a phenomenon that was created much earlier when, uh, you know, various demographic surges like that of the Arab Muslim conquests and that of the sort of Berber, um, uh, you know, kingdoms uh, established in North Africa were part of, which is that is, is the Mediterranean is um, an Islamic lake and you know, has shifted from being a Roman-like in antiquity, a uh, Mare Nostrum, to, <laughs> uh, to um, an islamic lake, um, because, you know, Islam brought uh, these new groups to its shores, uh, to the shores of the Mediterranean, um, Arabs, Berbers, but also, um, you know, allowed their interaction with people who were already there, uh, to produce this thing that we call uh, Islamic civilization. so until the end of the 11th century we still have you know the sort of functioning of this Islamic lake and uh, the you know um, it, until the end of the 11th century we still have the presence of Islam in the Mediterranean as something that not only connects various parts of its littoral or various areas of its shores from Spain all the way around to Anatolia in a kind of um, space of exchange of goods, ideas and peoples but also you know helps to produce some of the enduring uh, legacies um, not just states and political institutions but also social and cultural institutions and you know Uh, kinds of knowledge that, you know, individuals who traveled back and forth across the Mediterranean at this time um, have given us to the state. So, for example, you have... Uh, what Marshall Hodson, a historian of the middle period of Islamic history, is called the internationalization of science. That's something that occurs at this time. The movement of people like Abu Salt from Spain all the way to Egypt, across North Africa, uh, with brief forays into the center of the Mediterranean to places like Sicily, creates exchange and encounters with individuals from a wider kind of a world um, that extended ideologically and intellectually all the way to India and China. So the, the transmission of ideas across the Mediterranean, across this Islamic Mediterranean, um, enabled bodies of knowledge from the east, as far east as China, to be put into play an interaction with bodies of knowledge that had been earlier produced in the Mediterranean during antiquity, with everything that Muslims in the in the middle were kind of contributing to the discussion. So that enduring legacy of the Islamic Mediterranean is something that not only helped kind of create this internationalization of science, but it also helped to produce... Uh, polymaths and individuals who contributed more specifically to their communities, whether it was Maimonides and his contribution to Jewish intellectual history and to Jewish law and to Jewish um, culture, or people like, you know, Abul Salt, arguably uh, a smaller figure, but uh, more importantly people like Ibn Khaldun who contributed to the intellectual, enduring intellectual legacy of the Islamic world,
0: and so historiographically thinking about um, these exchanges and, and the Mediterranean in this way, uh, how does it how is it sort of a new wrinkle on on how we think about the Mediterranean?
1: It's actually as we were saying earlier, it's something that is new and not so new. Um, in scholarship, it's not so new because. Uh, both European historians as well as historians of the Islamic world have come to the understanding and have explored the various ways in which the Mediterranean was really a conduit rather than a barrier between North, i.e., Europe, and South, i.e., the Islamic world, and Sub Saharan Africa. So most scholars have been, who have been, looking at areas connected to the mediterranean or have seen themselves as historians of the mediterranean in particular have since maybe the 1960s have been acknowledging that the mediterranean is not this border between north and south in the way that to this day in the popular imagination and in <clears throat> Political discourse; it still seems to be so. When people think of the Mediterranean to this day, they think of it as a place which produces um, certain kind of diet that enables people to live a long time. But they also think of it as this, you know, uh, boundary that is constantly being assailed. Uh, this boundary between Europe and the rest uh, of, you know, the world essentially. But this boundary between Europe and in particular the Islamic world in Africa that's constantly being assailed by individuals who are trying to traverse it and somehow contaminate this thing that we call Europe. Um, But scholars have long since come away from that. I think also um, two other developments have occurred um, which are I think important to the understanding of the Mediterranean as a shared space rather than a boundary, as a conduit, a space of exchange rather than a boundary, um, that have come out of re-examinations of Islamic history uh, on the one hand, and also a re-examination of how we think of history. Um, So Islamic historians have tended to focus on uh, two things. They've tended to focus on the development of Islam and for that reason they've tended to be concerned with the rise and fall of states that either helped further the development of Islam or in some way impeded it uh, or created the need for other groups like for example the ulama, to carry on the task of the development of Islam. Islamic historians traditionally have been very much concern with the development of the religion, much concern, therefore, with the investigation of texts, and in particular with religious texts or normative texts. Um, They have focused, therefore, on political elites, on religious scholars, and generally not been concerned with other uh, experiences that we would tend to be we would tend to assume are the concern of social historians or cultural historians or economic historians. But that has begun to change. There is an acknowledgement among Islamic historians that we need to broaden the kind of picture and we need to consider social, cultural and economic history. And the other thing that's happened is also um, this new interest, I think, relatively new interest in the world generally of Um, historians, to want to examine um, uh, spaces other than those over which um, nation-states have claimed uh, sovereignty. Um, They've wanted to explore many spaces that don't come under the direct control of nation-states. There's been a, a An increasing sort of interest in um, frontiers between uh, states as important spaces of interaction. And part of the sort of idea or understanding of the frontier as a concept has also um, led historians to examine non-territorial space, namely bodies of water, um, and how the ways in which they connect people rather than separate people have influenced events and uh, dynamics on land. So we've had a huge um, uh, production of scholarship about ocean systems and and seas, Uh, historians looking, for example, at the Atlantic Ocean and how it has been a kind of space that connected uh, places like Europe, Africa, and the Americas, uh, places like the, or spaces like the Indian Ocean as a space that connected China um, or other parts of Asia with Africa and the Middle East. Um, And I think, you know, that has begun to extend to the Mediterranean as a place that connects, um, you know, those areas that, Sadly, until today, we perceive to be in opposition uh, to each other rather than um, partners in, you know, very similar kinds of or parallel kinds of historical developments.
0: So I want to turn to sources a little bit and, and talk about where um, where the story of Abu Sald comes from. I know that uh, you mentioned the Rihla, um, but what that's like as a source and for historians exploring these um, this time period, these sorts of topics in the Islamic Mediterranean. Um, what sources are, are available to them?
1: The sources are actually vast. <laughs> um, not only is there a tremendous amount of textual material that has not as yet been examined, um, languishing away in various, Uh, archives or libraries of manuscripts. But there are also a tremendous number of non-textual sources that uh, only now are beginning to be explored. And by non-textual, I mean sources that include sort of things in the physical environment, um, monuments, uh, uh, buildings of, particular eras, um, what they tell us about, you know, shared aesthetic as well as functionality in society. Um, and there's as well uh, other things in the kind of material world, uh, physical sorts of evidence ranging from uh, commodities um, from prior eras or current uh, periods and Also, environmental and consumable consumable or perishable commodities, uh, food, for example, agriculture, so on, that enable us to re-examine sort of ideas that we might have about the Mediterranean, ideas about we might have about the way in which the sea uh, separates um, or connects, I should say, rather than separates. In terms of the, so I cannot speak to the sort of physical evidence in the environment um, or perishable commodities um, or even the sort of uh, non-perishable physical evidence that we have in the way of monuments and buildings and so on. Um, But even with regard, because I don't work on those, but even with respect to texts, I think part of the problem that we've had is not only that the vast corpus uh, of literature that has been produced by peoples of the Mediterranean in the middle period, um, if not later. Part of the problem with exploring those texts is, of course, linguistic. When certain lingua francas cease to be understood, and when they have to be studied in order to be used, languages, uh, for example, like Latin or certain forms of Judeo-Arabic or certain forms of Arabic itself, um, the task becomes difficult for historians to kind of zip around the Mediterranean as easily. If you know Latin, you don't necessarily have access to sources that are in Arabic and so on and so forth. Um, But also, I think the questions which we have asked of our texts is beginning to change and needs to change, um, continues to need to change. Um, we, you know, earlier generations of historians really were interested in normative texts, so they looked at the things produced by the Alama. Um, We began to get more interested in archival material, literature that was housed in archives of various kinds that enabled us to ask questions about society and economy that normative texts produced by the ulama do not. But even so, the kinds of things that we tend to assume about normative texts have begun to change. Um, when we read them, we need to ask uh, questions about whether or not there's an implicit you know, religious worldview in some of the literature produced by individuals from at least the Islamic side of the Mediterranean. Um, Maybe we need to read them against the grain. With respect to Abul Salt, uh, what I found was you know, a very secular discourse about what it meant to be a starving scholar in the Mediterranean. Um, I would really have had to impose a Sunni identity on Abul Salt and presume a kind of ad- ad- uh, adverse uh, attitude toward um, the she patron that he sought to acquire a living from, uh, I would have had to assume it because the text itself does not speak to these issues. Um, and the text itself, uh, which is a very kind of secular, if you will, recollection of his trials and tribulations in Egypt, um, not only helps us to question those assumptions about religiosity and sectarian identity. Um, But it also helps us to question uh, our ideas about the, you know, the degree to which transmission of knowledge was really determined by boundaries that separate Islam from Europe or East from West or North from South.
0: Well, Professor Hamdani, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This is a, a great fascinating topic, kind of really illuminating the life of this Abu al and where he fits in in the 11th and 12th, the middle period, of course, in the Islamic world and in the Mediterranean in particular. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. welcome.